0: With the coming of Dean Moriarty began the part of my life you could call my life on the road. Before that, I'd often dreamed of going west to see the country, always vaguely planning and never taking off. Dean is the perfect guy for the road because he actually was born on the road when his parents were passing through Salt Lake City in 1926 in a jalopy on their way to Los Angeles. My first impression of Dean was of a young Gene Autry. trim, thin-hipped, blue-eyed, the real Oklahoma accent, a sideburn hero of the snowy West.
1: Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books talk about what it
2: means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the
1: century. This time, we read Jack Kerouac's On the Road. We also talked to two experts on Kerouac, Jerry Cimino and Jean-Christophe Cloutier. Before we do, I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Jack Kerouac and the publication of On the Road, and I'll tell you a little bit about the book. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. At the start
2: of the episode, we heard a clip of David Carradine reading from the opening of On the Road, which comes courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio.
1: Erica, who was Kerouac? And how did On the Road come about?
2: Jack Kerouac was born Jean-Louis Kerouac in Lowell, Massachusetts on the 12th of March, 1922. He was of French Canadian descent. And in fact, his first language was French. He studied at Columbia University in New York on a football scholarship, but dropped out of college in the early 1940s. He stayed on in New York, however, where he met the people and the friends who had become known as the Beat Generation. These were Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs, and Neil Cassidy, who became characters in his work. In On the Road, Ginsberg was Carlo Marx, Burroughs' old bull Lee, and Neil Cassidy, Dean Moriarty. He went on several road trips across the US in the late 1940s and early 1950s, many with Neil Cassidy, and these formed the basis of the largely autobiographical book that he called at different times Gone on the Road, Souls on the Road, and finally, simply, On the Road. There's a lot of mythology about the writing of the book. He wrote the final draft in three weeks in April 1951, fueled by coffee, apparently not Benzedrine, as legend has it, (laughs) And using long rolls of tracing paper that he taped together so that he didn't have to break his writing flow to change individual sheets on his typewriter. The original so-called scroll manuscript had no paragraph or chapter breaks. Despite finishing this in three weeks, he had been working on drafts and notes towards the novel for years beforehand.
0: Hmm.
2: After years of Kerouac revising the manuscript and trying and failing to get the book accepted for publication... On the Road was published by Viking Press in 1957. It was an immediate bestseller and has since sold millions of copies. I don't think we can overestimate just how culturally influential this novel has been. Everyone from Bob Dylan to Tom Waits to Bruce Springsteen has been influenced by it And it had an undeniable influence on the countercultural movements of the 1960s and beyond. Kerouac died at the age of 47 in October 1969 of an abdominal hemorrhage possibly related to heavy drinking, having published 14 novels and several books of poetry. Most, if not all, of his work remains in print. And here's a little cat corner. Kerouac loved cats and had several in his life. His favorite apparently was Tyke, a Calico-Persian. He wrote in Big Sur, quote, I love Tyke with all my heart. He was my baby who as a kitten just slept in the palm of my hand. Elisha, tell us what On the Road is about. In
1: 1947, Sal Paradise takes to the road. He's a veteran of World War II who has just undergone an illness and a divorce when he decides to leave New York City and go west. He's looking for something. Is it love, life, God, all of the above? It's not always clear. As an aspiring writer, Carrack's alter ego, he's also looking for materials to write about. And boy, does he find them. This book follows him on multiple trips around America and even into Mexico. But the book is as much about being a man in post-war America and about friendship as it is about his quest on the road. Sal's friendship with Dean Moriarty, whom Erika has told us is the alter ego of Neil Cassidy, is what really gives life to this book. Moriarty is the mad idiot prophet who compulsively marries and walks out on women over the course of the novel. He is eternally moving, unable to be still, hungry with wonder. He is a con man, a thief, a derelict father whose childhood of bailing out his own father from jail and then spending time in prison haunts his adult life. Although he abandons woman after woman, they each continue to carry a flame for him, and although he is an utterly unreliable friend, he retains a magnetism that seems to come from his unconventional, unfettered pursuit of living fully intensely, with unmediated exposure to the substance of life, which Sal calls in all capital letters the IT or TIME. There are echoes of the transcendentalists and the existentialists throughout, as these friends seek to suck the marrow out of life, to use Henry David Thoreau's words. Not in the woods, but on the road. Allusions to Dostoevsky, that scoundrel and saint, also provide the idiot trope that Sal applies to Moriarty. It's a story full of madness and jazz, of friendship in the great American landscapes covered by the open road. It's a story about drugs and sex and the drive to find something more than suburban life and the promises of civilization that don't seem to pan out. If it's a coming-of-age story, there's little sense of what age has come into being or of what development the characters have undergone. The book ends with Sal leaving the road and the vagabonding life to settle down with a new wife back in New York City where the book began. And whereas it began with Sal meeting Dean and taking to the road, it ends with them parting ways with the elegiac words, and nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen to anybody besides the forlorn rags of growing old. I think of Dean Moriarty. I even think of old Dean Moriarty, the father we never found. I think of Dean Moriarty.
2: Before we get into our discussion about the novel, we're really excited that we get to share with you an extended reflection about On the Road from Jerry Samino. Jerry is the founder and director of the Beat Museum in San Francisco. You can find out more about the Beat Museum at Kerouac.com.
0: I think Jack Kerouac is one of the most important writers of the 20th century. His novel, On the Road, is by far his most well-read book. In my opinion, On the Road truly is one of the defining books of the 20th century. It's a coming-of-age story that resonated throughout generations. It's the entry point for probably 80% of the people who come to Kerouac. A large percentage of the people who come to the beat generation find their way through the novel on the road. It's basically a post-World War II novel uh, about America. It's it, it's a love letter to America. The, the thing about that I love about the novel is he really is giving us a glimpse of what America looked like in the late 1940s, early 50s. The story of on the road takes place when everything is changed. So if you think about those times, rationing, which had been a big thing during the war, is now over. Therefore, gasoline is plentiful all of a sudden, where it hadn't been here in the US during the uh, war because you had to save the fuel for the war effort. Not only is it plentiful, it's very inexpensive. So if you had a car, let's fill it up and go. We can drive anywhere we want. So the car that we have in the museum is a 1949 Hudson. It's the same type of car that Neil Cassidy would have owned. It's almost a character in the book. It's mythical. If On the Road had taken place in the 1800s, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy would have been cowboys on horseback going west. If it took place in the future, they'd be in the Millennium Falcon with Luke Skywalker flying across the universe. It's, it's the vehicle for the story, because on the road really is an inner journey. It's not so much the outer journey. It's a spiritual quest. On the road is, is myth-making, and Jack understood that. It is pretty much a true story, but just like any writer, Jack focused on what he chose to focus on. He would embellish a little bit here. He would change a little bit there. Legend and myth-making is what the beats are all about. The way I look at it, you got to look at the beats and on the road in the context of their time. A lot of people say it's a boys' club, and it was. A lot of people talk about it was uh, misogynistic in in ways worse it was. But the standards were different. The times were different. And I'm not using that as an excuse. But you you have to look at the books as standing alone within the context of their time. Things are so different today in 2020, and they have to be. And it's good that they are, of course. But in 1950, 70 years ago, when this was written, you can't look at it like it should have been written today. It just wouldn't be written the same way. It just couldn't be. Every new generation rediscovers that story because it is a youthful story and it's got the energy and drive of youth. It's about sex, it's about drugs, it's about experience, it's about adventure. And every new generation you know, comes to that. What's really interesting, having done this for 20 years, is meeting kids when they're 15 or 16 and then meeting them again 10 or 15 years later when they're adults. Having the parents sometimes come in with their kids saying, you got to read this, you better not go hitchhiking across the country, but you need to read this book. And, you know, part of the reason is the cultural implications of it. I mean, you never could have had a 1967 had it not been for 1957. The beat generation became the beatniks. The beatniks became the hippies of the 1960s. And none of that would have happened had it not been for On the Road. So many people were influenced by that novel. The whole era of the 60s would have been totally different had it not been for Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Now, he tried to disavow himself of that. People came to him and they said, you know, this is all your fault. This whole hippie business, you know, these anti-war demonstrators this is all your fault. He says, I had nothing to do with that. And they said, yes, you did. You wrote that damn book. And this is what's been coming from it all these years. And he suffered with that because uh, Jack was a true blue American. He didn't want to see anybody downgrading the country. But again, to get back to the main point, so much of the last 50, 60 years of our history, has can, it can be seen through the lens of that groundbreaking 1957 release of On the Road, which, which changed everything.
2: So Alicia, what was your experience reading this book? Had you ever read it before?
1: I had not read it before, but I, I have had friends who have found it to be, if not life-shaping, then an expression of something really important to them Mm. at a key moment in their lives. Yeah, it seems to have that kind of effect on people. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's more often men than women. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. And so I I found it interesting sort of for social reasons. And Mm. I also, I think there's something very attractive and exciting about, the desire for an unmediated experience of life and and also a skepticism about, you know, somebody coming back post-war, things that he he strived for, his first marriage just not working out, not giving him whatever he thought or hoped they might. Yeah, institutions, right? Institutions failing, yeah, well well put, Erica. So I think there's a lot that kind of kept me going through it. There was also a a counter movement of resistance to my reading where mm. you know both of these sides tend to be voiced pretty strongly in the surrounding literary criticism. There are strong advocates of the book and then there are people who disparage it for what it represents. And maybe also the aesthetics that are bound up in that. My own doctoral dissertation was on kind of <laughs> the opposite kind of writer to Jack Kerouac. Um, J.M. Kitsia is always rewriting and intr- yeah. incredibly thoughtful about the way that language and institutions and traditions are shaping the way that one speaks, no matter how spontaneously one thinks one's being. So um, Kerouac wants yeah. to have the spontaneity as as more authentic and more true and pure maybe. And Kitsia is very skeptical of that. So, so maybe I bring some of that skepticism to this.
2: Yeah, I hear you. I guess that was an experience that I had reading it as well. I mean, there's these wonderful moments in this novel. Like I had some moments where, I, okay, cards on the table, I came to it quite skeptical hmm. because of the legend, you know, it's legendary status. This idea of it being this, you know, road novel. I'm thinking this is a novel for bros, you know? This is like a novel of bromance on the road. A lot of the the people I know who love this this work or the work of Jack Kerouac are, are men. And I was expecting there to be a a, a a kind of a blindness about that. and i and I think there is, to some extent. But, going back to what you were saying, this idea of like this unmediated flow of words coming out of him, there are moments in this book where there's just really great yeah. kind of sequences of language that sound really nice. You know that that the famous the famous bit where he says, I shambled after as I've been doing all my life after people who interest me because the only people for me are the mad ones. The ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, (laughs) burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles. Those moments of exuberance. There's something here. There's something in the kind of texture of the language that he's using, that sense of relentless forward motion of of going through and doing it and you know that plays into the the legend of how he wrote the thing on these long strips of paper that he taped together so that it wouldn't break his flow there is that kind of momentum you do not get that in kutsiers writing that skepticism is a is almost paralyzing sometimes
1: absolutely and what you were just saying reminds me as well of something that Dean Moriarty says in the book when he's talking about an alto sax player when they're listening to jazz. And you can just you can kind of hear the way that this writing style is profoundly informed by jazz and like striving after mm-hmm. the same achievements. And I think jazz is one of the great American achievements. So I, I, I found that really compelling um, about yeah. the book and and Dean saying All of a sudden, somewhere in the middle of the chorus, and he's speaking about the saxophonist, he gets it. Everybody looks up and knows. They listen. They he picks it up and carries. Time stops. He's filling empty space with the substance of our lives. Confessions of his belly bottom strain. Remembrance of ideas, rehashes of old blowing. He has to blow across bridges and come back and do it with such infinite feeling, soul exploration for the tune of the moment that everybody knows it's not the tune that counts, but it. Capital IT. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the, even just the rhythm and the language of that is is mimicking that. And I'm thinking this is the era of bebop, which is this virtuosic jazz playing going all over the place. This like riffing, this improvisation. And it's also like fast and there's stuff going on all over the place. This really kind of virtuosic thing.
1: Didn't they call it like the time between Charlie Parker and Miles Davis in the book?
2: Yeah, and As I mean, well. that's that's what it is. It's like Dizzy Gillespie style writing. So the thing is that I came to it skeptical, and I think that some of my skepticism is justified, but I also ended up feeling like there's these moments in this book where the descriptions are just really beautiful, and they feel, they do feel spontaneous, and obviously all of that is informed by culture and history and conventions, but I think the idea that this is actually a second language speaker writing this and shaping the way that American identity is being thought of, a person who's actually of French-Canadian heritage coming in and, and changing that, that that makes me think a little differently about the novel and Kerouac's work because it makes me think he actually was, in, in certain respects, an outsider. I always expected that this book was going to be about like insiders not knowing that they're insiders. You know, like the, the kind of sterile blindness of white men at a time... Hmm the late 40s, the early 50s, this is kind of the heyday of of whiteness that uh, you know reactionaries at this moment right now in 2020 are, are harking back to, the post-war years, where, as Jerry Cimino said, fuel was plentiful and, and things were taking off again. So I think that there was something about that that changed the way that I read the book, the idea of Kerouac being more of an outsider than I had expected.
1: That Yeah, that's interesting to me, partly because... I think my conception of America is really shaped by this idea of it being you know a land of immigrants and mm. and at the end of the day, everyone kind of everyone has a role in shaping what it is at least in the idealized version and comes ultimately from somewhere else so to some extent, like that outsider perspective is also the insider perspective, yeah it's yeah it's 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 fuzzy, I guess
2: yeah no i I hear what you're saying I guess i I'm maybe I'm coming to this with an overly simplistic idea that's maybe a, a racial lens, like a white man on the intersectional kind of axes, he's like in the prime spot. Hmm. That's my assumption. And maybe that this novel helped to nuance that a bit. But you know, there there are aspects about that that really troubled me, the, the whiteness of this novel, the, the way in which Kerouac talks about people who are the the kind of others, you know, uh, about Mexican people or about black people. Even that those jazz passages where he's describing these virtuosic jazz performances by black musicians mm. primarily. And that moment where he's he's talking about white ambitions, it's like the first chapter of the third section where he's talking about the lilac evening in Denver. He wishes he were a Denver Mexican, anything but what I was so drearily, a white man disillusioned. All my life i'd had white ambitions etc cetera, etc cetera. like he, he talks it's this kind of lament for for whiteness but at the same time i'm like mm, you're exoticizing a whole bunch of people in this and in this book more generally i was i was uncomfortable about that so it actually reminded me of this thing that tony morrison writes about in playing in the dark which is a fantastic book of literary criticism actually Um, And it's one of the books that started off the the whole idea of whiteness studies. So in the kind of introduction or the preface to the book, she says that she had started collecting moments in American literature when white people have a kind of a, a coming to consciousness moment because of the artistry of a black person, like the black person is sort of instrumentalized as a kind of a a vehicle for the mm-hmm. white person's story of becoming. So she talks about, I think it's a it's a passage, I can't remember in what novel, but it's it's of a, a jazz player, it might even be Louis Armstrong, who's being described by an author. The point is that it's this instrumentalization of like the exotic other, the the one who can embody kind of embodiedness maybe or um, cultural rootedness or rhythm or music or freedom or you know, liberty or something like this. It's, it's like a fetishization and exoticization of these characters. And they aren't three-dimensional characters in and of themselves in <laughs> their own right. They are instruments for the white person's story of becoming. And I saw that quite a lot in this novel. So it's that sort of angle too that made me expect certain things of a story by a, a white American man.
1: Yeah, there there are a number of racial slurs. I don't know, the way that women are spoken about, the assumptions about ethnic groups that are perpetuated, Yeah, I think are unsettling. But sometimes I wondered, are, are these people being instrumentalized or made into a vehicle any more than anyone in the book is? Like, all the characters seem to view each other as a vehicle for achieving transcendence or something. Yeah. And also... The Dean Moriarty character, when he's going through Mexico, it's pretty offensive at times how he views and speaks about Mexicans. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there is a genuine curiosity. He speaks about what would it be like to be inside that person's mind. And so in that respect, it seems like there's something doubled happening where there's this reduction of their humanity and a kind of exoticizing primitivism that gets projected onto people, but on the other hand, an actual curiosity to go inside someone else's mind, be they yeah. at times, you know, African Americans or women or Mexicans. And so the same people who get reduced also get treated as human and elevated yeah. to gods at times, which can be part of that exoticizing, like you say, fetishizing. Yeah, I think that's
2: part of like the paradox of of whiteness actually, is that it relies on others and And this novel actually is this in a nutshell really is it's kind of like white masculinity in crisis or coming to the end of itself and looking for others, knowing that there's something at least kind of poverty stricken about the this self that had been held up as kind of kind of am- Americanness or masculinity or. American exceptionalism, or something like that. There is a kind of a crisis, so it's a looking looking outward for other and desperately wanting something that feels meaningful, but at the same time having been raised in this position of privilege and and ignorance of of others, really not necessarily being able to engage with people as themselves. I mean, like that's part of the thing about Neil Cassidy or uh, sorry Dean Moriarty in the novel is that. Kerouac refers to him as this holy fool, as this kind of saintly figure, and he's clearly there's some kind of re- attraction going on there that is, what's the word, sublimated in some way. But he treats people horribly. Mm. He swans in and entrances them and is incredibly charismatic. And then he just drops them off on the street in San Francisco and like abandons them or leaves them in the middle of like dysentery. Yeah. Dean leaves cell in Mexico in a fever adult state because he wants to go back to marry his next wife. Yeah. I actually had this thought while I was reading this that 10 years later, a Dean Moriarty becomes a Charles Manson. <laughs> like, if Dean weren't quite as self-destructive, I think he could have been a cult leader, frankly.
1: Yeah, that magnetism. Mm. Now, Erica,
2: mm-hmm.
1: for my own kicks and giggles to use sort of the language of the book. I, f- I found you a potentially unhappy bedfellow in your criticism, and myself as well.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in the bed with us, Alicia?
1: <laughs> Harold Bloom. <laughs> no! <laughs> so in Bloom's modern critical interpretations, he includes Jack Kerouac's On the Road, where he does the intro and editing, and then he has some other essays in there as well. And in his introduction, he says on page one, I had not reread On the Road during the near half century since its first publication. So this is coming out in 2004. And I am not happy at encountering it again. (laughs) The book has many admirers, including Thomas Pynchon, but I hardly understand what he and others discover in this rather drab narrative. Kerak's vagrants are literate, self-pitying, afraid of women, and condescending toward Mexicans and African Americans. He goes on to say, I can locate no literary value whatsoever in On the Road, but I must admit (laughs) the same blindness, if it's that, afflicts me when trying to reread the verse of Allen Ginsberg, a good acquaintance whom I miss personally. On the Road and *Howl* look easy and are easy. (laughs) Self-indulgent evasions of the American quest for identity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man.
2: Look, I know the the beats come in for a lot of a lot of flack. I think Bloom is getting off on his own cultural capital here, to be honest. I mean, what do you think of what do you think of what he had to say? Do you think that this has no literary merit? I I don't. I think it absolutely has literary merit. What do you well how would you describe that? Yeah. No, I am saying like some of those those descriptions, the way that, that the form really, really fits the content and gives you the sense of kind of relentless onward movement. You know, like most of my issues with this uh, novel are about the content rather than about the kind of literary craft of it. I think it's quite, it's quite beautifully crafted, the, the shape of sentences. Yeah, look, there's, there's moments where I feel like Kerouac is getting high off his own supply in hmm. a way. He loves his kind of epic talking about America and looking out in the West. And there's these kinds of set pieces where he says things like, Mad, drunken Americans in the mighty land. We were on the roof of America and all we could do was yell, I guess, across the night, eastward over the plains where somewhere an old man with white hair was probably walking towards us with a word and would arrive at any minute and make us silent. You know, there's these kinds of moments where you feel like he's just already loving the like, sound of his own voice here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know the extent to which Kerouac shaped that cadence and that move, or the, the extent to which he's kind of tapping into something. But like, yeah, that sounds like it's satisfying to read. And when you read it out loud, it's got this kind of a thing to it, you know? And for that reason, I'm like, there's stuff in this book that is kind of well worth sitting with and enjoying and listening to.
1: Yeah, I wonder what its relationship to spoken word poetry is or might be.
2: Yeah, and knowing that Kerouac was a poet, yeah, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, okay, so to be fair to Bloom, he does include essays that are more positive positive in his little collection, including this one by Carol Gottlieb Fopat. She's resonating with something we're saying. On the road is more than a crazy, wild, frantic embrace of beat life. Implicit in Carak's portrayal of the beat generation is his criticism of it, a criticism that anticipates the charges of his most hostile critics. Yeah. And something I appreciated is that even though he has the protagonist's treating women very poorly. He also includes criticisms of some of that, not all of it, in the book. He has women speaking back and and the men don't the men don't always have answers to what the women say.
2: Yeah, I hear what you're saying. But you could also say like to be self-involved is also to like be self-loathing sometimes. So, yeah, there's there are these other voices that are incorporated into it. Does that dispel the idea that this is so very caught up in itself? I don't know. It's a balance, isn't it? Because self-awareness is mm-hmm. so, so important for growing up and being empathetic and ethical action and compassion and all of those things you need to know yourself in order to be able to do that but to be wrapped up in yourself is kind of taking it further so there's a spectrum here and yeah I don't know I found myself sort of stepping back at certain points in this novel being like dude just step away from yourself for a moment but then there's the self-destructive thing with the drinking and the benzodrine and the the various drugs that's clearly going on here. So I think we could step back and look at this novel as not being like Kerouac's treatise on what he wants to be, but maybe a kind of a, a document of, of what it is to be a white man at this moment to be trying to reckon with this stuff. And, you know, the kind of misogyny in the book or the the kind of racism in the book then becomes something that's diagnostic, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what Kerouac's intentions were with it, but I do believe in coming to each text, each book, with as much generosity as I I can. Hmm. And sometimes that requires more of me because I feel like the book places me as a reader in a particular position, whether it's kind of trying to collude with me or whether it's kind of excluding me in some way. And I felt like I needed to do more work with this one to come to it and kind of see it on its own terms. Yeah. Was that your experience?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that also the the times or the ways in which it appealed to me made me slightly <laughs> nervous. Hmm. Yeah, that, that self-absorption, that dedication to looking for meaning and for um, an intense connection with life that also comes at the expense of just the grit of daily life. And I, I find that sort of Mm. cautionary. And maybe the ending is sort of ambiguous and it's unclear to me. Is this ending Sal's development that he can move past the friendship and past the journeys on the road? On the other hand, he's plotting another trip to San Francisco with his new wife. And so is it a a coming of age kind of story? Is it a, you know, five part kind of Bildungsroman kind of thing where he gets this out of his system? And I think... I mean, in some ways, it reminds me of the way that Nietzsche appeals to people. I think it appeals to a young person coming of age, trying to get something within their grasp. Yeah. And there's something dangerous about that appeal and exciting and, and also something kind of positive. Yeah. But it depends on how it's wielded, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. The kind of reckoning with the older generation, the institutions that you're inheriting, as you're coming of age where they become your institutions and not just the ones of your parents.
1: And I think some of that countercultural critique that's diffuse, at least, in in the book, that's part of why it resonates with readers as well, or American readers at least. No, Absolutely.
2: And I think that's really important. Like, we need to question the institutions.
1: Yeah. I, I liked when they're in Mexico and, well, it's also slightly dubious bit. But Sal is, is describing, I think it was women who are offering them who are are sort of trying to make sales on the side of the streets. And they watched Dean, he says, serious and insane at his raving wheel with eyes of hawks, all had their hands outstretched. They had come down from the back mountains and higher places to hold forth their hands for something they thought civilization could offer. And they never dreamed the sadness and the poor, broken delusion of it. They didn't know that a bomb had come that could crack all our bridges and roads and reduce them to jumbles. And we would be as poor as they someday." And stretching out our hands in the same same way, I mean, it's also a veteran story, yeah. And that challenge of coming back from the intensities of war and sort of reacclimatizing.
2: And by 1957, well, I mean he's writing it in in the early 50s. Like by then, they know about the atrocities that took place in the Second World War, genocide, but also the effects of Hiroshima and. It's very hard to to defend the American dream after that, or even the dream of Western whiteness, or the the myth of Western whiteness.
1: We're now going to hear an interview with Jean-Christophe Cloutier, an associate professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. He works on literary archives and has edited a collection of Jack Kerouac's French writings. He has also translated some of Kerouac's lesser-known works into English for the famed Library of America.
2: Welcome, JC. We're really happy to have you. When did you first read Jack Kerouac's work?
3: Um, I, I think I first read Kerouac, I was a teenager, like a young teenager. In Quebec, I'm from Quebec. I'm Quebecois, uh, so I speak French. Uh, my first language is French, but I'm not European. I'm, uh, you know, from the North Americas, which is something that I'm mentioning it in part because it's important to to understand in Kerouac also to consider the Americas as this kind of continent uh, rather than a simple nation, but it was a beat up copy of Satori in Paris that I still have. (laughs) And it's not one of his greatest uh, novels at all. But it was fascinating to me because he inserts so many uh, phonetic French phrases in there. All of them almost sounded like a kind of (laughs) grandfather in Quebec or a kind of maybe a drunken uncle kind of talking (laughs) and making jokes and I could hear it I could hear it perfectly because he spells it most of the time he tries to capture the sound of it uh, the sound of how it actually sounds like and he called that sound spelling but for some reason I didn't quite kind of bring it together that there's that the whole mythos of Kerak wasn't present in my mind at the time it was just some beat-up copy I had found and then later, when I became a bit older and then I made a bunch of a group of friends who were uh, more Anglophone speaking, they knew of Kerouac also, but as, you know, this author of On the Road and this kind of great adventurer. What do they use these days uh, or used to even like YOLO, you know, like uh, You Only Live Once and uh, all these kinds of things. So then I, I took a train trip with a friend of mine to Halifax. And the book I brought on that trip was On the Road. <laughs> And I read that and I loved it. And then after that, my friends and I spent, you know, quite a few summers hitchhiking. We crossed Canada on the Trans-Canada Highway, you know, uh, hitchhiking, thinking that we were back in the 40s. And again, I wasn't kind of bringing the two identities together until uh, later on. I realized this is the same guy. And Hmm. why does he have my French? And then slowly pieced it together. Which
1: is a perfect segue to our next question, namely... Has your reading and translating of his French works impacted your reading and understanding of his English works? And if so, how?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. It's a big question. It's something I'm still, you know, uh, working through in many ways. Um, But I think, you know, understanding that he's not a native English speaker is already like a huge paradigm shifting perspective to think of Kerouac. Uh, He's someone who, you know, brought a lot of new freshness into American letters in in the mid-century moment, this kind of new uh, writing style that was uninhibited and free and long-breath sentences, you know, that he would just kind of unfurl, uh, unleash on, on the reader. And yet he comes at it as a second language. So... When you start to think about other authors that we know about that are kind of famous for doing that, it, I think it becomes an interesting kind of pedigree and, and, um, and realignment of literary achievement. Joseph Conrad, you know, famously authors who adopt a different language and try to master it. Uh, Which is also something that we see often in post-colonial literature, which I find also fascinating as an approach to think about when you read Brathwaite or uh, Edouard Glissant and all these thinkers of uh, creolized languages. You see that um, Kerouac is um, really easy to understand from those paradigms. He fits the bill. Because he uh, grew up uh, learning one language that was being spoken by a, what was then a very reviled and mocked and you know, unappreciated ethnic group, French Canadians in New England. And I think when you learn a different language, you know, when you adopt a new tongue and you try to master, in part because you've been told to assimilate, you, can, you don't necessarily know the rules as they're supposed to be. And you start to do new things with the tools, with the master's tools, uh, and I think that's part of how he came to develop, in part, his unique style. There's a lot of other factors, but I think it's a, a you can't get, you can't really understand it without knowing that background. Yeah, I mean that it it seems
2: to enrich our understanding of his work a lot. Speaking of background. Um, how important is context to understanding Kerouac's work?
3: Uh, it's really essential, you know, I think. And it it adds a lot to his work. Another thing that Kerouac does is most of his narratives also try to give you a lot of that context if you're paying attention. So if you really look closely, most of the time that he uh, is writing, he really situates the characters in space and you often even know what time of day it is. There's there's this great physical presence about where the characters are. There's an understanding of the world around. There's descriptions of grass, of trees, of of debris in the field. Uh, this kind of uh, you know inventory, this this archivist of, of the of the neglected, you know, in many ways is, is a lot of Kerouac's work. Whether you're talking about you know migrant workers, uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, you know junkies people that you don't really see or don't really usually get their own stories. He's, he's interested in those lives, in those people. He, he has this line in visions of Cody again, that says like, I'm interested in the hidden America, <laughs> you know, like the hidden brick, like this, this, this part of the structure of the building that you don't see. He wants to go find where it is and then describe it for like three pages. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's important to that, that he, gives you a kind of context so that even if you don't, you're not aware of his identity and his background, you know, if you divorce author his biography from the work, you can get a kind of very precise understanding of what is happening to the characters in that way. You're inside their psyche a lot of the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about what you said about him talking about wanting to write and sort of reveal hidden America, um, I've always thought of Kerouac as kind of quintessentially American as a writer and quintessentially mm-hmm. like, you know, United States of American, actually. And and he talks a lot about finding America right. and, um, you know, but have I, have I been wrong all this time? Clearly, He's very French Canadian too, in a way that I was not aware of before coming to, to On The Road. Beyond kind of North America, do you think he has things to say more widely? Do you think he has things to say
3: globally? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I th- it, there's no question that the kind of inherited Kerouac that we have in in popular imagination and culture is that of a kind of quintessentially American. Because he's been, his brand, shall we say, has been appropriated in so many different ways, you know, even from Gap ads, you know, where in the 90s, you know, Ginsburg collaborated with Gap and they agreed to have posters of the Beats, including a Kerouac. It's that famous photo of him at the Kettle of Fish, you know, in the village in New York, uh, he's wearing khakis, and then the the tagline is like "Kerouac wore khakis." <laughs> you know, it's terrible <laughs> things like that. <laughs> uh, so th- this kind of capitalistic machine that appropriates what the Beats were were, were trying to actually fight against—you know, uh, uh, capital and materialism and all those kinds of things. And so there's always this kind of gap, and there's a gap in our understanding of him and our where he actually is from and what we uh, have absorbed from that, in part because of the success of, of On the Road and how he was conflated to be not just Sal Paradise, but say more like the Dean Moriarty character based on his friend, uh, Neil Cassidy. And he's the more quintessentially American in many ways, the, the Neil Cassidy, the Dean Moriarty, the new 20th century cowboy <laughs> kind of character. But he, when you look at his other writings, his writings in French, you know, uh, he has a lot of different things to say. You know, I mean, there's a, this both beautiful and heartbreaking line in, in The Night is My Woman, La Nuit et Ma Femme, which is one of his uh, long novellas in French, my favorite. I think it's like the best of, of Kerouac, but he's with his friends from New York And he says, with these guys, you know, with them, I was, uh, I spoke in English and I was a completely different man. In his journals, he talks about his dilemma, about his identity dilemma, his Canuck dualism crap. (laughs) 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 So he's got these conflicts about him, but he also says, you know, I have to live, you have to live in in English. It's important to the English. And so the Canuck does it. Uh, and he says that in French. He says, il faut vivre en anglais. C'est important aux anglais, you know? Um, so he's very aware of these kinds of assimilating kind of forces that have, that have made him American, or that he's tried to be American and what it means to be American, to fit in. And there's a lot of flack that Kerouac often gets for trying to embody a different type of identity, right? There's this a famous passage in On the Road, all that I've ever been given are white ambitions. You know, I don't have enough jazz, enough night, enough music. All of these kinds of things. And those are very, you know, incredibly naive statements on Sal Paradise's part about trying to want to embody a different position. But I think there's a different way of understanding those statements sometimes, where it's about wanting to be seen as a kind of invisible minority. Even though you're passing as this kind of Anglo-Saxon type, you're not uh, this kind of WASP uh, individual, but you have this whole other cultural and ethnic heritage that is not valued where you are. And then you've been told not to try to live that way. I mean, one of the things that you know, French Canadians and Franco-Americans often heard when they were working on, on the, in the factories, because the reason they migrated was to, to work. Most of the time, they would end up working in the mills, uh, the New England mills. And one of the famous you know, things that the Anglophone bosses would yell out at the workers was, speak white. <laughs> if they were heard speaking French, they were told to speak white. So there you have this conflation of French and person of color. And you, you often get that with a lot of other kind of now only considered white kind of ethnicities at the turn of the century, you know, whether it's the, the dirty Irish and all of that, uh, but that were considered very ethnic. So he's coming out of all of that. And I think there's a, you know, an unrequited wish on his part to have that recognized about him, the pain of assimilation, the pain of having been treated in a certain way, but not being able to have that as a valid experience because, because of your white, basically.
1: That brings us to the last question, which is, to your mind, is On the Road, one of the books of the century, and would you pick it out of Kerouac's body of work? You've already said it's not your favorite. Right. So maybe that's some foreshadowing.
3: Right. Well, yeah, picking I mean, it depends what you mean by picking it out of his body of work. I, I, think, I think there's no question it's a book of the century. That's good. There's a reason why NYPL put it on, the, uh, on their list. But I'll say this, like I, it's not necessarily because I think it's one of the great literary masterpieces necessarily of the century, but because it's had such an impact culturally and it's had such an afterlife still to this day. you know. I mean, I sometimes teach a freshman seminar called Kerouac in Context. The final project that I have my students do is a, what I call a legacy project, which is to try to trace something from Kerouac or the Beats that is active, happening today, right now. And as part of that, I tell everybody to put Kerouac um, and Beat Generation as uh, Google alerts. Mm -hmm. And every day there's a hit. Every single day there's a hit. uh, And it's usually a reference to On the Road. It's there. And it's kind of undeniable in that way. Like it just has that impact. So it has to be there as part of the discussion of 20th century uh, letters. But in terms of like his greatest literary achievements, but like on a very personal, intimate level, I would pick. La Nuit et Ma Femme, like The, the Night is, is My Woman, because he's, I've never seen him that honest about everything. But I think that uh, Visions of Cody is his greatest literary achievement. It's a very experimental novel, but it is uh, just this magnificent ode to friendship, to the American continent in many ways. And it's, it's incredibly narratively innovative. So I'd say that. I would recommend that as a kind of his uh, his Ulysses, you know.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Um, JC, thank you so much for such a rich and detailed set of responses to our questions, really. You've given us so much to think about and filled in so much of that rich background detail for us.
3: Oh, it's my real absolute pleasure. I always, I'm always always up to talking Kerouac.
2: Alicia, the New York Public Library lists this as one of its books of the 20th century. Do you
1: agree? Well, Erica, interestingly, this actually wasn't one of the librarians' initial picks for the books of the century, but rather it was included on the basis of readers' responses to the initial exhibition. Huh. Interesting. So... Yeah. I think that reflects the role of this book in the century, the 20th century in America. It's had a wide ranging impact and it has a lot of committed readers. It has some divided <laughs> a divided readership as well. Yeah. So I think I, I, it's not clear to me that this is distinctively accomplished in aesthetic terms. I think it does reflect some sensibilities and, and aspects of it's historical moment in a way that w- has been culture shaping. So for that reason, mm. you know, I think that's what's reflected yeah. in readers wanting it on that list. And because we're evaluating the list that's been created by a public institution that's connecting books with people, I, I think you know that's a strong argument. And it's it's impressive that they did take readers' perspectives on board. If I were making a list just abstractly, then. I don't I don't think it would be on it, but books exist in the world and part of what's so interesting is the way that this book has existed in its world.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I think that if we're thinking about the book in the world, the the cultural influence of this novel is really huge, really impressive. Like Bob Dylan was changed by it and he's, you know, this no- Nobel laureate, which mm, is its own question, but like Bob Dylan is one of the great popular cultural figures of the 20th century. There's that story of like the Beatles changing the spelling of their name to B-E-A-T-L-E-S because there was some connection with the beats. I don't know if that's true. It's It might be apocryphal. But like, I can't think of Simon and Garfunkel's song, America, existing without On the Road. There's so much. And I think the thing that gives me pause is that maybe it's this American exceptionalism thing. As a South African, it sort of flags it up. I'm like, what are the books of the century? Is it is it because it's this kind of America loving mm-hmm. the myth about itself? <laughs> because of the cultural power of the United States in the anglophone world it's affected everything so that in the suburbs of durban in south africa i could grow up knowing what on the road was and knowing the kind of aura around kerouac Hmm. and the beats but should it be on a list of the books of the century if we're thinking in very broad international terms i don't know and my inclination is no Perhaps there is a space for different kinds of books and different kinds of cultural impacts to be featured. So here we are at the end of the road with On the Road, We'd like to thank Jerry Semino and Jean-Christophe Cloutier for talking to us for this episode.
1: All original music was made by Erica Lombard. Thank you to June Lombard, my mother, for her typewriter from the 1960s. So good. On the next episode in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. If you want to read along, please do. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast at literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter at literatepodcast or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the episode, please rate, review, and
2: subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen to it. Always remember
1: to support your local library. And independent bookshop.